Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Tammy, the COO at PixArt, and we discuss items that technical founders might overlook when creating a startup, how entrepreneurs have the opportunity to positively affect the world, and why having the right people positioned correctly is a recipe for success. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? Yep. We can hear you. Look at that background. You better have made that with PixArt. Did you make that background with PixArt? I did. It's a shameless plug. (laughs) I love it. It's good. I was actually just like listening to my own intro episode uh, so I could pronounce Hovenez's name correctly. (laughs) How do you say it? Uh, Well, I pronounce it Hovanas. Hovanas? But uh, I'm I'm sure that's also not quite correct either. (laughs) But that's that's why I call him Hove. Oh, you call him Hove. Okay. I'll I'll adopt that new nickname too. (laughs) How did you end up meeting him and getting involved with PixArt? Um, I met him uh, about two and a half years ago, maybe almost three years ago at this point. Um, At that time, I was on a sabbatical for my previous company. I just needed to take some time off and rest after many years of um, just nonstop, nonstop going, going. Um, So I actually took one year off. And toward the end of that time, I was thinking about what it was that I wanted to do with my life next and uh, had actually come up with two ideas for startups that I wanted to start. And then I got a call from um, the founder of my previous company um, and he's on the advisory board of PixArt. And he said, you have to talk to Havanas. This is a really amazing company, amazing growth. And it just, it's, you know, they're looking for uh, an operator who also happens to have a marketing and a community building background. So that you're the only person I know who has that background. So you have to talk to him. So I met him and I spoke to him. And once I learned more about PixArt, it was very clear that uh, this was the future of communication. And at that time, my kids were, you know, young teenagers. Now they're 17. uh, Now they're 17 and 16. But it was very clear to me that they represent a um, the future of how people will communicate, which is just visual. They, they prefer to communicate through memes and stickers and short form videos. And PixArt was such a, uh, at the center of all of that uh, trend that was happening. So I thought, okay, this, this company is uh, going somewhere. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting way to communicate because we use words and conversation that creates like emotion, but you can do it faster with, with you know, GIFs or memes or whatever type of graphic you, you want to call it. It's, it reminds me of like the, um, like the Egyptians on the wall. Like we saw them as exactly. so old and now I'm seeing them as like, oh, they might've been even more advanced and more intelligent. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And you know, the other thing that I realized after digging into it a little bit more, even with my kids, my daughter especially, she's such a social media maven. Um, you know, that there's there's a language to this visual communication that I had no idea. There's so much nuance between one emoji to another to a series of emojis and the meaning 
um, that, you know, if, if you do it wrong or the series wrong, then it's, it's laughable. I think it's kind of funny. Yeah. And then there's different, like, yeah, it, it's, it's just communication through the emojis. Like there's some emojis that you only use like with your partner, your spouse. And the, it's, it's just so interesting how we're evolving as humans with this communication. I also think it was really cool. Like one of my favorite things about the Pixar was it feels like, like a, like a Photoshop meets like a social network because people were engaging and doing these things like remixes and sharing. And, you know, now, you know, it's no surprise that, you know, he brought in you with community and then the product ended up having that, that community aspect to it. I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, Havana's had a really great vision very early on. If you see very early versions of the pitch deck, you see that he had envisioned this combination of this combination of what we internally call the three C's, which is the creative tools, the community, and the content. Um, and it really has remained true to this day. And I think it's a huge reason why one of the re- big reasons why Pixar has become as big as it has and it sustained its growth over, you know, since it launched in 2012. Can you give me some idea, some context, like how big is it? Um, Pixar, now we have a install base of more than a billion. Uh, At some point, more than a billion people have downloaded the app. Uh, What we're really proud of, though, is the fact that uh, more than 150 million people who use the app on a monthly basis are all creators. They're not passive uh, observers. They are all creating something. So they're very engaged and doing something um, on the app. Uh, in addition to that, we have a very high percentage of daily usage. So it's more than, I think, 35% at this point. That's a daily usage. So if you think about the uh, editing activity, which is theoretically, it's an occasional use activity. The fact that people are doing it so frequently, even on a daily basis, is um, is uh, pretty impressive. And what's like the average, do you have like a an average use case that somebody's using? Is it you know, middle school kids? Is it businesses for posting content on their social media? Um, the, use case, the use cases range quite a bit. So we do have, uh, I think a little over 50% of our users are Gen Z. So we do have quite a bit of young users as well. So they may be using it for, you know, applying a filter and sharing it on social media. They may be creating a meme or a collage or editing a video and sharing it on TikTok. We also have about 30% of our use case that's non-personal use. So it would be things like I'm creating a flyer for my college uh, organization or I'm a small business and I'm creating an ad for Etsy. Um, So the use cases vary quite a bit and we're always constantly surprised about the new ones popping up all the time. One of the interesting ones that has that's uh, become more popular, especially over the last six months, is uh, uses for Pixar specifically for the intent of stress reduction, and so that's that's been um, increasing. And what we're hearing from users uh, post pandemic, like stress reduction, like yeah. they're frustrated with other tools, or like those videos that you see sometimes on Instagram where they're like cutting clay or something. Oh, you mean like uh, the ASMR? Um, 
It's, it's, I guess it's sort of like an ASMR, but active. So instead of watching someone else doing something, you're actually doing it yourself. So that the process of doing it, creating, uh, created art, uh, it's very soothing. And, and I've, I've, I've experienced it myself. So if you're editing something, it's like painting a, you know, painting a picture or drawing. It's, um, uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's stress relieving. Oh, I get it. I get it. Sorry. No, I a hundred percent agree. Like for me, like, uh, playing the piano or something like that, I, I can go into a flow state and a creative state and it's absolutely one of my good, like I like to, for stress reduction, I like to work out and I like to play music. Those two things I can just go in, get in the zone, you know, almost instantly every time. And, uh, then it just kind of, you know, resets my frame of the world. Right, right. That's cool though that you're getting, how do you get that feedback? Do you run like questions in the app? How do you do that? Uh, we do occasional surveys at least once or twice a year. Uh, we survey our entire user base. Uh, we might do spot surveys. I think we did one recently specifically on uh, pre and post pandemic activity and how that's changed. The other really great group of people that we are talking with on a very regular basis is what we call the Pixar Masters. So these are people who are super users of the product and really active members of the community. We have direct relationships and communications with them. So these are people who are who spend probably you know 10, 20, 30 hours a week or more um, on the app, and they are helping to educate other users, they're uh, showcasing inspirational edits. Um, so these are people who give us very specific feedback about, um, give us suggestions for products and what's going on in the community, that kind of thing. Nice, yeah, so I was curious to know about like your role as COO. I was reading through some of, some of the research the team did on you and you mentioned a couple times about like the COO uh, playing a role as like assisting technical founders of a startup. Could you share a little bit about that? Um, I think Havanas is a is an engineer founder, but he's also a very savvy business person. In that, uh, this is Pixar is his fifth or sixth company, um, so he's he's a very experienced entrepreneur. That being said, a lot of founders are technical founders. So they have more of a technical background. They may be engineers or they may be starting out or new. That's not the case in Havanas's case, but um, a lot of times uh, they still want to focus on product. They want to focus on engineering. They want to focus on you know other things that have nothing to do with people or less to do with people. But at the end of the day, when you're growing and scaling a company, it all comes down to people one way or another. So when you can have someone to handle and manage the scaling of the business, managing people issues, whether that's uh, hiring or um, you know having, essentially it boils down to having the right people in the right places focused on the right things. Um, so that's not necessarily a skill set or even um, honestly a good use of some founder's time. So when you have that balance, I think it, it's, that's the best situation. Well said. Often people ask me about different roles, you know, the three letters and what they should be doing and their responsibilities. And you know, I guess I've learned over the past couple of years after talking to so many people that 
if you're in the sea level, it's really exactly what, you know, you just said, Tammy, it's the ability to figure out, you know, what you need to do, who the right people are and putting them together in the right ways based off of the needs of the business, not based off of a blog post of what the 17 responsibilities of a COO are. <laughs> right. right, exactly, exactly. And it, it will be different for every single company. But yeah, it, it's really at the end of the day, it's removing barriers to your, um, your objective. And, and, and that just comes down to people. Yeah. It, actually, we were talking a little bit about this yesterday as, as talking to the author of a book called Team Topologies. Now, that book is amazing when it comes to like structuring teams because they provide like an entire language and framework around how to discuss it with like stream aligned teams and all of this stuff. But I had had so many conversations about structuring teams and you know, similarly connecting them back to what I was you know, just talking about the title where your team structure is going to be dependent on your business needs, right? But then he took it to this whole new level. And so now I'm, I'm just kind of like on a high, you know, excited about these, uh, these new concepts that I was learning from him uh, in team topologies. But I like to, whenever I find good stuff, like when I find Pixar or this book, I like to share it with people because, um, I don't know, I just found that, that people, when you bring good content into their lives, uh, they like you. <laughs> I like to be liked, right? So you have a lot of experience with marketing startups, right? Yes. Yeah. So like walk me through how you, you do that from like an early stage. So I'll give you some more context. Like we're uh, a startup right now. We have about 10 employees. We do the podcast and we primarily like sell advertising and things like that. But how should we be thinking about marketing at this early stage? I think marketing works best when you are taking advantage of something that is already organic or innate for you. So for example, if you have any kind of um, community is a really great place to start. Uh, so getting feedback from them, incentivizing them to share um, on their social media, word of mouth, et cetera. Almost all products will have some kind of core rabid user base. If you don't, there's probably a problem with your business. Um, so I would take, take advantage of that. Um, there are, there's a lot of growth marketing strategies that you can employ. Um, a lot of them have to have involve uh, paid marketing. Um, some companies it makes sense and some companies it doesn't. Uh, there's what they call a uh, LTV CAC uh, analysis that you can do to see whether based on the lifetime value of your user, um, how much uh, is it, does it cost to acquire that user? So if the unit economics makes sense, um, it makes sense to put money behind it. So if there's a LTV CAC of, uh, let's say, plus you know three or something along those lines, that's probably pretty good. Most of our uh, marketing is, uh, the vast majority is, I would say maybe 90% of our marketing is organic. Um, so that's the best uh, situation to be in. Um, you, it's, it's hard to sustain paid marketing growth um, over time uh, for obvious reasons, but organic marketing would include channels like um, social media, um, email, uh, uh, winbacks, uh, that kind of thing. But typically you would look at it in terms of what are my or organic marketing channels and what are the opportunities for paid marketing that's going to be a good return on my investment okay yes yeah, so like right now we do a couple things uh 
for like outreach, like we, we focus on two areas, like more listeners and more sales, right? So in the more listeners area, we do things like we put an outro on the end of the episode, asking people to share if they, if they find it valuable. We do outreach like email campaigns where every, every week I sit down and like find 50 different CTOs and send them an email and ask them like, you know, what should we, what should we ask upcoming guests? Uh, but we were considering the idea of like running Facebook ads or YouTube, things like that. But I couldn't figure out how to really justify it because there's, it's not like a direct return on investment. It's not like if we get a new listener, we know the exact dollar amount or they're purchasing something. So we weren't really sure like how to, how to grow it with paid advertising. And then when I saw your experience with marketing, I was like, oh, maybe I'll ask Tammy and she'll have some good ideas on how, where to start. Like, do we find a person that knows how to do this and have them help us or? Um, I think it really depends on your business model. Uh, so you're ad based, right? So that's a little bit trickier ads, sponsorship. Yeah. So, so people pay, like we don't run ads on the podcast, but people will pay, like we have a six month backlog of like, like we're booked six months in advance, just naturally. And then if people want to like come on sooner or if they want us to, you know, make clips and promote the episode, we've got like three packages that they choose from, but we never do interrupt advertising because I hate that stuff. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Got it. Um, so I think you do have a built-in uh, network effect in that your guests and the companies that you invite are incentivized to promote the content afterward. So that, that is, um, that's, that's a great model and it, it makes sense. You don't want to interrupt the user experience with advertising, but at the same time, um, it's, you can tap into the network of your guests as well as the companies that they work for. So that's, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, one thing that you might consider is maybe having a advisory panel or uh, maybe even of people who are in the media space or, uh, publicists or, um, you know, influencers in, in the community, uh, tech people, industry people, that kind of thing. Um, the great thing about advisors is they're just, they are helping you for the sake of, of helping you. Um, and they're, they tend to be really well connected in the right spaces. And then what do you suggest for startups? And sorry, I'm just like picking your brain here. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you were expecting this, but I was, I'm excited. Uh, and we can edit out anything that you, that you don't like either. But um, when, when you see founders or, or a company and they have many available paths, like they could do a lot of things. There's a list of like 40 different things they could do. How do you help them figure out like the things to actually take action on? Like for marketing, like if you had if you had forty possibilities of marketing, like forty different things, how would you as a as a marketer, early stage startup, figure out which of the two or three that you focus on? Um, I think great marketing, as with great product development, there's a lot of trial and error and A/B testing you should do. A lot of the strategy is dependent on your situation at any given time. So that will include things like, how much money do I have to spend? What is my business model fundamentally? Does it even make sense to do paid marketing? Um, is there an ROI to that? Um, what other assets do I have to work with in the beginning? I don't necessarily think that 
a lot of what you should do in the very early stages, I think, is start to experiment with a lot of different channels, test it out and see what the results are. That's also dependent on who you have to work with uh, on the team. So there might be people who are um, early stages, probably the best people to hire are generalists or people who are what I call figure it outers. People who are uh, really good and comfortable with not having done something before, but who can learn quickly and uh, act and pivot quickly. That's probably the, the kind of personality that you want to have early stage because then they can wear multiple hats and they're okay with it. Later on, it makes sense to specialize and hire people who have very specific experience in a particular channel, whether it's you know, influencer marketing or social media or uh, email, et cetera. You want people with experience because um, otherwise, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I would recommend early on. How do you identify those figure outers? Like, have you found a good, reliable source to, to, to find those people or good questions to ask during interviews to find them? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been interviewing people, probably thousands of people in my career and uh, have gotten much, much better over time at spotting the people who are more inclined toward that way. I guess this doesn't apply just to early stage startup. It applies to any company that wants to be innovative. And, and increasingly, that's not just startups. That's, that's any enterprise, period. Um, even big companies wants to have people who are entrepreneurial minded uh, in their thinking. So in terms of um, spotting those people who are more inclined toward that direction, it's hard to say. I think um, if you have been doing it for a long time and you have, um, you've been interviewing so many people as, as I have, you tend to kind of uh, spot those. A lot of it is sort of instinctive. So I would say, listen to your instinct for sure. Another important aspect is uh, the referrals. So even though the candidates are giving you the references, first of all, you want to try to back channel when you can, um, not the formal references, but back channel. Um, but even when you are talking to, for instance, um, a lot of the people who I am interviewing, I will do reference checks myself uh, rather than having HR team, et cetera, do it because I think there's a lot of, that you can pick up between the lines in reference checks. So when I've made mistakes or big mistakes, it's when I haven't listened to my gut, either in the interview or in the reference check where people are, they want to tell you something, but they what comes out of their mouth is actually different than what they may be saying. So either um, facial gestures or pauses in, in what they're saying. So you have to really kind of listen and pay attention rather than uh, going into it thinking, I really desperately need to hire this person. So you don't want to jump to um, make decisions out of desperation for sure. You wanna to listen to your gut. Uh, and one of the questions that seems pretty obvious that I like to ask uh, in interviews is, do you love your job? And surprisingly, a lot of people either say, they, they don't outright say no, but a lot of people are not that enthusiastic in their response. That's a big, big, big red flag. That's one. I agree. Like the past couple months I've been waking up and 
just thinking like, I am the luckiest person in the world. <laughs> like <laughs> I get to do these shows four days a week. And honestly, this hour of the day right now talking with you, Tammy, is like my favorite like out time of the day because it's, I don't know, it's just like a, it's like a dream that came true. And so it's, it's really exciting. And that, that feeling of knowing you're in the right place or on the right track is really, really great, especially when we have it within, you know, the other members of our company, right? Like everybody's like really pumped up to be doing what we're doing and uh, building that type of momentum is, is critical to like having success. Cause like, I'm sure you know that over at Pixar, you guys have, you know, lots of employees in multiple countries all over the world. What's, what's the culture like there? Yeah, I mean, before I get to that, I wanted to respond to one of the comments that you made about you loving your job and you feel like the luckiest person on the planet. I think that's that's awesome. And um, I, I firmly believe that, you know, actually, uh, I, I mentor a lot of young people. And uh, what you see common in a lot of young people early in their career is they have this existential angst about what do I want to do with my life? And am I doing the right thing? And am I contributing to the world, et cetera? And what I often tell them is the best thing that you can do for the world is to do what you're really great at. Usually when you're doing something that you're really great at, that means that you are contributing in the maximum capacity. And it usually means that you're very happy doing what you're doing, uh, which also has a ripple effect on everyone around you. So uh, I think that's great. Then that means that you're in the exact right place. Uh, so to your question regarding the culture at PixArt, um, culture is not one of those, you know, here's a list of five bullet points of what our company's culture is. Culture is very organic. A lot of times it's, um, it's both top down and bottoms up and it needs to be reinforced in actionable ways constantly. So it's it's something that you need to be very, very thoughtful about. So for instance, um, one of my favorite entrepreneurs of all time is uh, Jared Friedman, who's uh, the former CTO co-founder of Scribd. And he's now a partner at Y Combinator. I, I love Jared. And uh, he was very well known at Scribd for having um, <clears throat> Uh, built really great engineering teams and hiring really great engineering teams. So one day I asked him, Jared, what's your secret for doing that? And he said, it's really simple. No assholes and no crazies. And I thought that is a really brilliant boiling down essentially of uh, the baseline that you want to have. And it, it seems pretty obvious, but a lot of companies don't enforce that. So that, that's, that's a number one rule of culture, I think. Yeah, and they probably don't defor, um, enforce it because of things like what you mentioned earlier about like, uh, like shopping hungry or you know feeling the need to fill the position just because you have the quota to fill. Mm -hmm, exactly. What else in culture? Open my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, culture is, uh, it's one of those things that it's really hard to put a finger on, um, but it is incredibly important for hiring. It can be a strategic advantage for hiring, definitely for retention, uh, definitely for word of mouth. Um, 
Because if you have a uh, employee base that's not really happy in their company, it also shows up in the, the end product, uh, in the customer support and everything. So uh, it is something that we're constantly, uh, constantly uh, thinking about. Um, and it really, luckily, you know, in our case, I think it's, it's relatively easier to uh, enforce because Hovannis as a CEO founder is not an asshole. He's not crazy. He's very supportive of the employee base. He cares. He loves doing um, offsites. He loves uh, recognizing people, that kind of thing. So that's, that's awesome. That's another thing that if you don't have, it's really hard to manufacture. The other is consistency and hiring policy. So interviewing and, and infusing into this, incepting into the hiring managers that, you know, qualities that you want in people who are um, collaborative and, um, uh, you know, low ego, uh, that kind of thing. You need to actually specify that to hiring managers. I think in engineering teams, it tends to be a little bit harder because it's, it's a category of people who typically are valued based on their technical ability. Um, so you have to really ask yourself the question, how important is that versus, you know, if they're really crazy or uh, they can't work with others or they can't communicate with others, how much more do you value that? So it's, it's kind of sometimes a fine line. And how do you do that with the technical or with the hiring managers? Is that like you mentioned, you know, you, you explain to them the qualities of the people that you're looking for and you bring that up frequently because that's a, that's a culture point you made too. But like, how does it actually look? Is Are the hiring managers going through like a training program? Is it when they meet on a recurring weekly or monthly meeting that the leader of the hiring managers is bringing this up? Like how do you reinforce that constantly? Um, I think a lot of it is reinforced through the daily culture of the company itself. So what are you, it, it can't be just a um, prescriptive, you know, here's a list of things that you need to look for. It has to be just infused into um, every day. Uh, so it's things like, um, how do you communicate to the company? Um, what is it that you highlight as important um, on a daily basis? how are managers communicating with their direct reports? So it's, it's an unspoken uh, sentiment, I guess, that, that's, uh, that permeates the company first and foremost. Then secondly, as part of the interview process, uh, so we, for example, have, uh, depending on the location, we may have a cultural interview. Um, so someone from the HR team in our Armenia office, for example, will do a cultural interview as part of the process. So they actually do specifically interview for culture fit. Uh, one of the other things that we're evaluating is a software that uh, has people uh, fill out a, a series of questions uh, that's designed to um, identify, um, you know, various strengths in EQ um, as well. So um, we're looking into um, those kinds of softwares as well. Yeah, that's a pretty cool category of software. I took one a while back and it was arguably the most favorite one I've ever done. And it was just showing me pictures and like asking me questions about the pictures. And mm. that was like the entire thing. And it was like a hundred or 200 of these pictures. And then it spits out this like personality, psychological profile type deal. Um, 
And then I was like, huh, I want to see how accurate that is. And so I was like, this is pretty accurate. I was at least about how I feel about myself. And I was like, then I gave it to my wife and had her do it. And I was like, yep, this is very accurate. <laughs> Did you feel like a lab rat when you were taking it? Um, no, I always feel like a lab rat when it's like a text question with like a one to 10. And I'm just, it reminds me of standardized tests in school. And it's mentally hard for me to, to, to care. Um, I just feel like I'm feeding data into a big machine. But when it was images, like... And it was asking me questions about like the image or select, you know, which of these four images, you know, how you feel or whatever it is. Those, for some reason, that just connected with my personality type or however I am. It connected with me really well and it didn't, it didn't feel like a standardized test. Right. We're going back full circle to the visual communication. We are. We are. And who knows? They might have even used Pixar for some of those images. <laughs> So uh, I want to talk a little bit about leadership, if that's okay. What's, what's some of the best leadership advice that you've ever received? You know, one of the very early bits of advice that sticks out in my head very clearly is um, early on in my career, I had this uh, boss who was always very positive, very chipper, always looking on the um, um, bright side and just generally extremely well-liked. And I asked him, and you should ask people things when you're curious about it. I'm, I'm obviously asking people a lot. I asked him, how do you do that? How do you maintain this positivity, even though I know all this craziness that's going on around you? And he said, my motto, my life motto, my business motto is don't let the assholes get you down. Again, it's with the assholes, but uh, I thought, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's really great advice. Um, <clears throat> so it's uh, in, in startups in particular, in, in tech and in business in general, there's always going to be, um, there's a category of people who are just sort of inclined to be negative, And that's their sort of default way of being. So in response to any situation, they'll always immediately think of the negative, what not to do, why I shouldn't do it. You need some of those people too to sort of balance, especially in a very kind of like crazy entrepreneur background. But uh, um, it just kind of reminds you that, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily want to, especially for people who are being negative unnecessarily, you don't want to let it weigh you down. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for people that have like a positive outlook or the ones that can identify, like the hardest thing I have found is identifying the problem and then presenting it in a non-negative way because <laughs> it's shorter and faster often to just be like nope stupid you know but it's it's much harder to be like yeah okay that was good have you thought about this like it, mm -hmm. tweaking it like this and it takes more work but it makes people respond better to you I would say probably the lesson that I learned the hard way and most people do, and I've been very thoughtful about um, being aware of this myself and the advice that I would give to other people is in terms of leadership is try to remove your ego as much as possible. Uh, there is really no room for ego in business. If you want to do a good job, if you want to get to the result, you want to remove your ego. And by ego, I mean 
being able to spot the issue very clearly in a sea of craziness, this, you know, if you have a thousand red balls into a pit in a, in a pit, how do you spot the, the one red one, right? That's something that let's say that's the goal that you want to achieve, or that's the objective or something in order to be able to do that. Uh, you need to clear away all this clutter that's, that's in your head and to think more clearly. Um, but a lot of the clutter that's in people's head is self-imposed. So it's things like this, this inner conversation that people have with themselves on uh, either negative thinking or um, they must be thinking this, uh, projecting um, into you know, other, what other people may be thinking or scenario thinking in their head. I mean, there's just so much clutter in people's head that sometimes it's really hard to, uh, to get out of that. So that's, that's something that I've very actively worked on. I think it's very important because it will really help you to see the, see the issue as it is in a straightforward manner, if that makes sense. hundred percent. Tell me how you, you're working on it. Tell me how you do it tactically. Um, I think the number one most important thing to remember is to be aware of the fact that you're doing that. When you're aware of this inner dialogue that you have going on in your head, you can see it more objectively and understand that you're doing it in the first place. And then you can intellectually rationalize that I have this conversation going on. It's really, you know, not, not only is it not helpful, but it's probably not true. Uh, even if it is true, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. So why spend the energy thinking about it? And so that's, that's probably uh, the number one thing that you can do to help. And it takes practice. It takes practice. It absolutely does. You're giving me goosebumps over here because I remember like one of the first times I realized that I had this conversation going on in my head. I was in my early 20s and I'd actually made like a Facebook post to my family asking them, does anyone else talk to themselves? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I don't know, just me because with age in the mind, you know, maturing in, in the early 20s, um, it just kind of happened one day. And then I was talking to other people and they're like, well, yeah, we all have voices in our head and we all talk to ourselves. And I was like, well, I'm like aware of it right now. And this feels a little bit weird. And then that's when I kind of found books like, um, like Untethered Soul, you know, books that cause you to, or like meditations, like things that cause you to think about the person who's thinking or like the observer. And those, those areas were really cool. And it, it gets a little bit um, abstract to a degree, but they're definitely interesting exercises to go through. Like, I think Sam Harris has some pretty cool ones. There's a couple, couple great people out there that can help you like get out of your or, or get awareness. So do you meditate? I thought you would ask that question. I actually don't meditate, but my husband is a long time meditator. And uh, he tells me that I've been able to accomplish what he still yet has not been able to accomplish after meditating for 20 years. So I think it's just kind of naturally, I'm, I'm just more inclined toward that more meditative state. Whereas some people may take a lot longer and more work to get there. Uh, but yeah, I, I do recommend meditation in general for people where it's it's harder to accomplish that. Yeah, I've I've done the meditation stuff for a while, but what I found 
is similar to you. And here's another interesting thing that to kind of add to that. Me being uh, the amount of alone time I receive is directly related to the my ability to control that internal dialogue. So I happen to actually measurably know like how much alone time that I need in order for me to have con- have control because I have you know two little kids and so I've slid across the spectrum of having zero time, negative time, mm-hmm. positive time from being single before you know having the kids for several years and then so I I I figured out like this uh, this balance for me it it's uh, I need like quiet time alone and if I get enough as I need then I have control and if I don't get as much then I get more susceptible to burnout and loss of control. And what I do now is like, I just try to minimize the time between when I'm aware that it's not going well. And when I start giving myself more time, if that makes sense, try to make that window small. Yeah. 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 You need to recharge. Yeah. How does, how does, does he like anybody uh, for meditating? Does he just do it quietly? Does he listen to guided meditations? Does uh, yeah, he does it quietly on a meditation pad thing. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's pretty cool. Did, now, over this year that you spent like taking off, what was that year like for you? What were you doing? Me personally, or, or oh, yeah, uh, that time. Um, you know, I I feel like I've been working nonstop since I was because my, my parents had a small business when I was growing up. So I worked for their business. So from the age of maybe 12, 13, I felt like I was nonstop. So I just really, I, I love my job. I love tech. I love entre- working with entrepreneurs. It's so uh, fascinating and fast paced and smart, uh, this, this category of people. But I really needed that time to do nothing. So what I did was I did nothing. I played tennis, you know, two or three times a week. I um, read books. I didn't read a lot of media. Um, I took walks. Um, I learned how to cook. I was not a cook during that time. So that's, that's what I did. And uh, not thinking or worrying about, you know, what I need to do next until the end of that year was coming. And I said, okay, now I'm ready to go back. And then, you know, back to uh, more um, directed mode. Nice. That's fine. Learning how to cook and all that could like some of the more interesting things or different things in life, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the best question would be, what does your daily or weekly self-care routine look like now? Um, you know, it's, it's different since COVID. Um, there's, I guess, more limitation on at least activities that, that you would normally do with other people. So I, I actually haven't played tennis for a long time, even though it's an outdoor sport, I still haven't. So I've moved on over to Pilates, which is also, I mean, that one is a little indoors, but it's significantly fewer people. And uh, the regimen is, is very specific uh, for sanitizing. So I do that. Um, I walk my dog. Uh, so there's just little things, you know, that I'm not a big fan of these grand gestures that people, that a lot of people feel like they need to do in order to feel like they're um, balanced or whatever. I, for example, I generally don't like to travel. 
which is kind of a sacrilege, I think, to a lot of people who love to travel. Um, I, I, I love the experiencing new locations, for example, uh, but I hate, hate the process to get there. The, the airports, the, the airplanes, et cetera. Now it's much less of an issue and it's been significantly better for my health. The fact that I haven't had to travel as frequently as I have before. So over the last, I would say, you know, almost 10 years, I've been traveling way too much nonstop. So I think that's, that's actually pretty bad for your health, especially as you're switching time zones all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the year before COVID, I did like 50 different places over the course of a year. And there were definitely times when I was just like, I need to just sit still or times where I forgot where I was, like, I'll wake up and <laughs> like, where right. am I? Right. Yeah. And that was, that was a weird feeling. Um, I am curious a little bit. So you have like a degree in journalism, correct? Yeah, journalism, journalism and economics. Okay, so I'm just curious, what's your perspective of like how journalism's changed from when you were studying it in college to today? Journalism has changed so much. It's it's incredible. I mean, I graduated in 1995, and even back then, there were hiring freezes um, at media companies, especially I would say print media, uh, even back then. But since then, it's uh, the entire landscape has massively changed. So when I was in college, one of the internships I had was at the LA Times. So I, w I had a reporting internship at the LA Times. During that summer, um, I was working in the Orange County Bureau of LA Times, and that was 200 people. Today, the LA Times has zero, no one in Orange County dedicated. So it's, it's changed so much. So just the number of people, the economics of media, the sprouting up of uh, people like you who are self-made, like individuals who are have found a really great niche and an audience that you're directly talking to. You know, the fact that everyone is doing kind of all the end-to-end -end stuff. So they're writing, they're taking photos, they're doing videos themselves. The propagation of media content through uh, the distribution channels on social media platforms is also been a massive change. So just the landscape of, of media industry and press is phenomenally um, different. And um, I wish, the one thing that I wish that there was more of um, was investigative journalism. Um, so yeah. I feel like that's harder to find. Where, where do you find it today? Are, are there like individual people that you follow that take it upon themselves to do it? Like, where do you get that? in your life now, like investigative journalism? Um, I think it is harder and harder to find. Um, there are some media outlets that still put more effort into it. So I would say there's still the long form uh, journalism, you know, New Yorker, maybe Vanity Fair, uh, Mother Jones, outlets like that, but then also more independent outlets that are pretty um, like ProPublica, I follow as as a uh, another non-US centric media outlet. I follow Al Jazeera is a great mm -hmm. one. And so yeah, I think if you if you can expose yourself to different points of view, um, it's it's good because US media is pretty um, 
it's it's U.S. centric, and um, it can't help being that because uh, it's Americans who are writing for an American audience. But uh, when you follow other media outside of the U.S., it just reminds you that there's another world and different perspectives. So hopefully more people are doing that, especially these days when they're exposed to so many different options. Yeah, I actually started doing that a few years ago where I would go read like UK news or Australian news. And Mm -hmm. it's so interesting how their news feeds are all talking about like the entire world, right? And then we don't see a, they're just different. I don't have great words to articulate it because I haven't had to before. This is the first time I'm talking about it, um, doing this, but it is definitely interesting to like, you want to get different perspectives. And then I would say a lot of the news, regardless of political affiliation, a lot of the news in the United States today doesn't have nuance or like details. It's more just um, like incitement or, or something. And so I'm always looking for good sources. Like I found this one newsletter that I like called um, for tech called like TLDR. And they just kind of summarize across, you know, everything like geeks or technologists would be interested in. And it's, it's just reporting on like what happened, you know, like ring doorbell released this new you know thing, or they'll cover all, all sorts of stuff from products to policy, um, things like the social dilemma documentary. Have you gotten to see that yet? No. Oh man, that is a good one, Tammy. It's on Netflix and they get a bunch of uh, like Silicon Valley tech executives together and they talk about concepts like, you know, echo chambers and algorithms. And it was uh, pretty well done. It, it brought up a lot of uh, thoughts um, on like how we're going to handle algorithms and the future as far as like a society. Uh, Things I'm sure you guys are thinking a little bit about too. Mm-hmm. You, you guys have like a ethics or data person. Like how do you do that at Pixar? Yeah. Um, this also goes along the lines of another threaded conversation in business these days about uh, the importance of having people who are in positions of power in companies that are come from uh, non-technical backgrounds, so people who are sociologists, uh, psychologists, uh, anthropologists, uh, more of the soft sciences, the people who are thinking more from a ethics point of view or humanity or a larger picture thinking rather than a, a very specific, specific sort of line item, you know, AB uh, type of um, view. Uh, and I totally agree with that trend, um, and I think it is important. Um, and I'm happy to hear that or see that um, the um, uh, the social sciences majors <laughs> also potentially have a future in in tech, more so. That is true, yeah. Because now the anthropology degree could could be like in high demand. Right. Right. Yeah, I think I think ethics will become like a bigger part, like as the future unfolds, I'm always, it's hard for me. Like one of the things I like about you know, the, the the podcast is I can explore like undeveloped ideas, like things that are new and hard to talk about. And then, you know, over the course of like 10 or 15 episodes, you just get better at like talking about them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when at first it started out as like, you know, algorithms and ethics. And then I was like, well, what's like the better question? Like, where is it really going? And I, and so far, 
like I haven't, I haven't gotten it yet. So we're still working it out. <laughs> you know, one, another way to approach the, I guess the larger issue is one way that we're doing it is through our diversity and inclusion initiative. So we have a uh, task force that is made up of uh, employees from all different departments, locations, et cetera, people who volunteered to uh, participate in this internal task force. And so what they do as a team, in addition to coming up with recommended policy and changes to existing uh, policy and practices, is that they weigh in on ethical related uh, issues. So for example, you know, we, we have a feature called uh, Beautify or, you know, something that allows people to change aspects of their face. So just weighing in on, um, you know, certain elements of that feature and asking the hard questions like, are we propagating this idea that uh, people are not perfect and they need to alter themselves in order to, to be better versions of themselves? Uh, those are really great questions to ask and we should ask those questions so one way or another, we happen to be doing it in this way, but one way or another, I think that increasingly consumers are um, uh, demanding that businesses take a position, right? So it used to be that businesses were neutral and you see this, you're, it's, it's playing out in Facebook very publicly right now, this shift, this consumer shift that's going on. You can't uh, be a neutral platform anymore you have to have a stance one way or another. And a lot of times you have to publicly comment on what that stance is. Um, so it's, I, I agree. I think all of these really tough questions uh, are forcing companies to evolve maybe much faster than they're comfortable with. Um, so that's, that's what I'm seeing right now is this, this rapid kind of evolution that's going on for you know, platforms that really were happy to sort of hide in the their platformness. I like that word. <laughs> they hide in their platformness. No, that's true. And it's you know, it's awkward and and hard, especially like you know, I I don't envy Facebook at all for having to to deal with these things because there's no it's it's not like a hard science. You know, things change based off of cultures and countries and it's not clear like what's acceptable everywhere. And one of the things I was thinking about is like, you know, I think we can all agree that some content needs to be taken down, right? Like certain types of content need to be taken down, like, you know, by like horrible things, right? Um, and, but those, even the definition of horrible things can vary by, by culture and country. Mm -hmm. So I was almost curious, like, you know, maybe countries will come out with like, um, like if we all voted on what content would be removed from platforms, I was just, I think it'll, I think it'll eventually as it matures abstract out of individual companies and maybe go to like some sort of like general country ethics code where they say, okay, in this country, we don't allow this type of content on platforms. And then sort of all the companies like agree to that. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's one potential because, because then it could go to like a democratic situation, like a, like a voting situation where we could actually in elections vote, like if we wanted to have certain content, like not available, I don't know, but it's happening and we can't ignore it and we need to have nuanced conversations about it. And definitely people that are smarter than me. <laughs> 
on these topics, but I think more data or more ethics people will will start to emerge in the in the next ten years. Yeah, it's it's moving very quickly. Um, this idea of what is the responsibility of companies to yeah, what what is the responsibility of companies beyond just building the the you know the base or building the place for people to gather? Um, on top of that, what else do they need to do to um, help create or facilitate a more positive world? I think you know people's reaction against that, against the content, against the negativity. It's it's a balance. It's a balance against what has been happening to date. So. Um, I'm not sure how it will evolve. I'm sure there will be some messiness along the way, but it's clearly rapidly progressing. Um, so, and we happen to be, I think, a little bit in the middle of it. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think definitely with the example you brought up, I don't think there's necessarily right or wrong answers that at least come to mind, but at least having the discussion with, you know, putting together your group and having the discussion about things like the beautify feature, the the fact that you're having the discussions is, it's like one step you can take, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to then help get clarity and, and new ideas. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty exciting, but I, I am optimistic on the long term though. I am. So when I look out, I'm optimistic that we succeed, get our stuff together, become a multiplanetary species, <laughs> maybe put some more Teslas into space with rocket ships. I don't know. <laughs> well, there there does seem to be some um, some science fiction that's coming true. So maybe Star Trek uh, future reality where people are more humane. Um, hopefully that will come true too. I think it will. I think the technology is going to help us do that. And I think that we're on the right track. I feel really like we're a society that's in in the middle of puberty, right? We just for the first time got connected. Like we took all of these people and we just connected them 24-7 for the first time. Like there's not going to be (laughs) some difficult stuff to work out. Of course there will, but there's such a net positive to it. I think we'll get through it, overcome you know, that's that's interesting, your perspective, which is um, inspiring to hear. I would argue that probably a lot of people are feeling the exact opposite right now, especially this year with the, you know, multitude of things that are going on that may not be so positive. Um, how are you taking that perspective? How do you, what's your secret? What's your secret? Uh, which perspective, the perspective of puberty? Yeah. I will just just oh. being positive in general because I think there's a lot of negative sentiment or people feeling like oh my god you know I have no faith in humanity with what's mm. going on in the world today. Okay, so I used to be not a positive person, um, and then I f- came to like the most logical conclusion that, or the conclusion I found that was most logical was that positive is the best way. So to think positively is the most life-giving sustainable way like i'm if you look at it um maybe like buddhisty right or like life is suffering like i'm stuck in this body for x amount of time you kind of get one result going through life if you look at it like it's a gift you kind of get another result and so i i lived both ways and what i found was that uh the more positive way was just preferable to me 
just to think that the more positive things are going to happen, uh, I think it calms me down. I think it reduces my anxiety, which helps me control the internal dialogue better. And uh, I think you just kind of, there just, there needs to be more positive people out there. And then the way I deal with it when I'm getting down or low on energy is I'll, I'll do a step, I step back, um, either take some time away or I go watch some, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson talks, things like that to realize how small we are and how long time, like time lasts, right? And then I just uh, think about think about life. And when I do that, I, I don't know, I see positive. So I, I believe that we do win. I believe that um, things do end up working themselves out. That's not to say that it's going to be all you know, uh, f fluffy clouds and rainbows along the way. There's definitely some difficult things that we have to work through. But in my personal experience, um, the most difficult times in my life, uh, things like getting hit by a car or holding my mom's hand as she passed away, uh, those types of things ended up creating like the strongest version of myself. Um, so I believe that like that adversity in life or those difficult moments in life create strong people and uh, we need more strong people. And so when I see this difficult moment happening, I'm like, okay, the worst thing that's going to come out of this is a, is a whole bunch of people who are going to be stronger. That's great. Yeah. You, I mean, people do definitely have a choice. So if you can choose to think, you know, in a particular way, that's, that's great. You know, there are two things that I see that are uh, positive uh, trends. Um, speaking of the uh, positive impact of, of tech. One is, um, as someone who's been observing the evolution of communities online um, over the last few decades, I would say the evolution of communities, my theory is that, you know, it, initially it started out as very utilitarian, like information sharing, uh, communication, et cetera. Then it evolved into uh, self-expression. So people who were using communities to express their love or their interest in something. But I, I feel like what we're moving into is uh, online communities and gatherings, whether it's people you know or don't know, that's trending toward meaning and trying to find meaning. So I think that that's a great evolution of communities. So I'm, I'm bullish about that. The other trend that I'm seeing among entrepreneurs specifically is asking themselves before they start a company, a lot of people, is how can, I, uh, how can I affect positive change in the world? And how can I address a fundamental problem that people have? Not necessarily people with money, but people without money or people who are struggling or disenfranchised in one way or another. So the entrepreneur community globally is always really great at identifying the need and then filling whatever holes that there may be or vacuums to address that need. So I think uh, that's that's my uh, call out to entrepreneurs around the world to continue to think along those lines because collectively uh, we can solve a lot of problems. I 100% agree. You know, the way, the way I started this podcast, uh, I was, I was listening to a guy named Gary V talk. You're in marketing. I'm sure you've come across Gary V. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that 99% uh, of the people he gives us advice to about, you know, building a community and starting and bringing value to others and wanting nothing in return is 99% of the people won't do it. There will be 1% of the people that do it and they'll have success and they'll go at it long term. So, 
you know, the first several years of the podcast, multiple episodes a day, losing my voice, making no money, putting all of my savings into it. Um, and then, you know, these things kind of happen naturally where we just didn't have, an, we were booked up in advance. And then, so we started saying to people that wanted to come on earlier, okay, well, here's a paid package. And then they're like, well, we want to run ads. And we're like, well, nope, we're not doing ads. Like I don't listen to podcasts that have ads. It bothers me or I skip them. And it's frustrating because I don't go there to listen for the ads. I go there to listen to the the guest, who, the person who's their insight. And so we just said, let's just build it slow, take time and and build something like the best we can. But I like that. Um, when I when I was starting, I, I Googled for like a CTO book and couldn't really find one. I couldn't really find a, like a CTO community or anything like that. And so I said, all right, well, how can I bring value to other people who have my experience? And uh, that I think that goes along with what you were saying about like, how can I affect positive change? So like our goal here uh, when we first started was to get the best insight from technology leaders to pass down to the next generation so they don't have to go through the same pain or make the same mistakes that that we did. And that was like the the original uh, driving mission of the of the podcast. That's great. It, it touches on a lot of the topics that we talked about earlier too. Yeah. And I like what you said about finding meaning, meaning too. I like that. The evolution of communities. Yeah. I think we need to, um, we need to explore more. I like them. What do you think? Are we going to become a multiplanetary species soon? I really hope so. I really do. I, you know, I was, uh, I'm a big fan of Star Trek. Um, I will admit it. I'm a little bit of a Trekkie. My favorite series is uh, Star Trek Voyager. But anyway, um, that that being aside, maybe it's because it's a woman captain. Um, <laughs> but uh, the 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 fundamental sort of um, premise of the Star Trek sort of universe as it exists is that yeah, interplanetary species, but within the planet of Earth that the the human species has evolved to be much more um humane you know the the best version of themselves and that's what uh that you know humans aspire to be so i i have always thought that if if we can accomplish that that would be that would be amazing right now i don't see it uh but hopefully that 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 be, that uh becomes a true thing Yes, I hope it does too. We're working on, uh, and our production team, we're working on a, like a series called At the Movies, where we look at things that were like in movies or TV several years ago, and then uh, those ones that have actually come true today. And so that's, a, that's like a fun experiment that we're going through. There's actually, we have a list of like 15 or 20 different things that were perceived or thought of in uh, movies and media. And it almost makes me feel like... Um, like if you look at humans as like one organism, it's like that's the like the the media type thing is almost like the imagination part of the the organism. Not everything comes true exactly how it is, but you can get a good idea on looking at like what what are we imagining today, and then how the future will look in twenty mm-hmm. thirty years. Yeah, it is amazing if you look back on science fiction from you know mid century or even earlier in the century, and how much of it has actually come true. Yeah, it's like a feature of us as a as a species. We can imagine our mm-hmm. imagination. It's almost like we build it, right? We one generation imagine it, 
and the next generation gets raised as like that's the exciting future and then we all kind of build it it's like a it's a humanity never ceases to like amaze me it's just absolutely fascinating <laughs> yeah now the trick is to get humanity to imagine a very positive collaborative a humane world that's what we need to collectively imagine and and hopefully that will come true I, I agree. I 100% agree. And I hope that that does happen. And honestly, you know, I woke up this morning because uh, the debates were last night. And so I woke up and I Googled news from both sides of it. And for the first time in like a decade, all the news outlets agreed to the same thing, that it was like not great. Like it was just <laughs> not a great institution of like America, like how it went down on either side. And I think that you know, I've been feeling the the change in debates uh, over the course of my lifetime, and they've gotten crazier and crazier and less less important and less important, and then just weirder and weirder. And I think we're kind of like cresting right now at this moment. We where there might be enough pressure here in the marketplace, all, all all across, to actually change the structure of how we do presidential debates, which I hope happens. Uh, you know, my husband was telling me last night when we were watching the debates that um, he said that when you watch the debates in other countries, including Korea, where he sometimes watches debates, he said the moderator has control over the microphone. So if people are speaking, they'll just mute the microphone or that's just part of the process. And I was thinking that's really simple, but brilliant. That would have made so much difference, wouldn't it? That's, that is the exact, so my wife comes in, my like in the room, like, you know, 20 minutes after the debate starts, we were just watching in separate rooms, like with, uh, and uh, she comes in and she goes, this is crazy. And I'm like, yeah. And I go, you know what? I don't understand why they just don't have a, like a, a button to turn the microphones off. Yeah. Like one person doesn't get to talk and then the micro, like, or just put it to a timer. So you don't, it's not even a person choosing to press the button. Just put it right. to a timer right. and the right. microphone's on and they can say words and then it's off and they can't. And let's give more than two minutes per like, it's like, oh, here are the most important things in our country. And you're going to talk about it for two minutes and we're going to vote on, you know, your view. It's like, let's let's have like detailed, nuanced conversations about what the problems are and how we can achieve better results. Yeah, it's interesting how that debate last night sparked a lot of conversation about tactical um, elements of the debate. Like, here's how you should tactically manage it going forward. It's a lot of people are talking about it. It's interesting. Yeah, you can Google. Um, I I came up or I started having thoughts about this in the last election, um, but you can you can Google for like high school debate club, YouTube stuff, and it's it's like amazing. These kids have they have they're in high school and they're having these unbelievable amazing debates. Like, and they're getting points and it's like it's a debate. And I was like, okay, you they're not the same thing. Like, whatever we saw in the past, you know, I don't know since I've been alive, they just weren't debates. Mm. They're somebody setting up a question and then the person talking about whatever they want to talk about for two minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We can learn a lot from kids. Yeah. So this, this may be, Tammy, this may be the thing that's going to like unify America, <laughs> right? This may be the thing. Like we all agree that the debates are like horrible. We need to, we need to change the, the structure of it. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's an interesting view of it. Um, it's a, the common enemy theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what yeah. we can all agree on. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can all agree on either, on either side that like both sides have a bad system for getting a good person to the top. 
right? Like it's not a good system on either side on how they like collect the people and then choose which one's going to represent each party. Like that's not a great system. And then the system, the, the secondary system of like those two selected people engaging is not a great system either. We need to like fix those areas of our of our systems and, and improve them. And man, do we have a lot of bright systems engineers in this country. We should be able to do that yeah, like relatively yeah. quickly. Yeah. The people in tech are crazy smart. If they were to get together and try to solve you know, problems outside of just the industry, uh, there's limitless what, what they can do. Um, do you ever have uh, debates or panels on your show? So, so far, we haven't really had a debate or panel. We, we pitched the idea, um, but no, we haven't had it yet. All right, Tammy, anything else we, we want to get out there into the world? No, I mean, there's probably a lot. <laughs> we should get a lot of positivity <laughs> out into the world. But, and I feel like our topics were pretty wide ranging, but uh, maybe that's what the world calls for now. And, and that's, that's kind of the reality of business, too. It's pretty messy. But yeah, I, I enjoyed being on your show. Thank you for having me. Oh, I enjoyed having you. So we'll tell people download PixArt, make some positive universe memes, and then push <laughs> them out, push them out there into the internet. <laughs> right. I mean, even funny memes are are good for the world too, because we we can all use some some lightheartedness right now. Yeah, that is one of my go-to moves: clicking into Netflix and like watching some comedy. Because that will, uh, there's nothing like laughing, right? Yeah, honestly, I think 80% of the accounts that I follow on Instagram are um, dog Instagram handles. I feel like the best part of humanity is dogs. The best part of humanity is dogs. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. I could see that. I think there's, I think that's like a high, a high percentage of people would agree with that. Tammy, this is great. So if there's anything else that we can help with, or if you see any like past guests you want connections to, or however we could be useful to you in your life, just let us know. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks so much. Awesome. Have a wonderful day. All right. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.